Hey, welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by discipleship.org. This is your host, Dave Stovall. Today we're listening to womenofrenew.org. And if you're a man listening to this episode, don't think you can just skip on through this because there's a lot of good stuff in here that Tina brings to the table that she wants to share with everyone. As we step into scripture, we find Old Testament shadows alluding to New Testament realities and Old Covenant truths holding up New Covenant promises. Whenever a text is cryptic or concealed, whether in the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets, the parables, or the apocalypse, we can look to the neighboring testament for clarity and revelation. These connections across books and testaments expose the overarching story that God is writing through His creation to transform us so that we don't just bear His image, but also reflect His glory. Let's listen to Tina Wilson from womenofrenew.org as she encourages us today. Here we go. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Is there anyone in here that was not in here last night? Okay. Oh, good. Okay. So there are some new people. Cool. So this is part two uh, of a two-part workshop, and I'll recap a little bit of what we talked about last night. I'll start by introducing myself. My name is Tina Wilson. Like Jason said, I'm a pastor's wife, a mom of seven, and alongside my husband, Matt, I've committed my life to serving Jesus as a church planter, a Bible teacher, an author, um, an advocate for all in family ministry. That's something I'm really passionate about, bringing my whole crew along with me and serving Jesus together. Uh, this is my family. We have uh, seven kids, six girls, one boy, Riley, Reagan, Reese, Rachel, Rose, Ryan, and Ramsey. And then this is our little bulldog, Kane. Um, and we all we all minister together. It's very much a, an all-in family thing, and that's something that that I am am passionate about is is seeing us uh, bring our children along with us as we serve Jesus. Because in that, I think that we lay a firm foundation for them as the next generation of leaders. Another thing I'm really passionate about is leading people through reading the entire Bible, challenging people to read the whole Bible, and equipping people to read the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. That's why we're talking about stepping into Scripture. Because I think this is the best way that we can develop biblical literacy, that we can grow in our personal relationship with God, that we can best understand Christ and the saving work that He did for us by reading the whole Bible. And and to get there, uh, we have to overcome some noise. In my home church, this is something that we do again and again and again. We finish a Bible read-through. We just finished a whole Bible read-through this past Friday, and it was 180 day. And we're going to start another one. I've got another small group. We're in Exodus and a year-long Bible read-through. And even in a church where this is just part of our DNA, uh, there are so many objections that the women I disciple have to overcome. And I do have a podcast. Season one is dedicated to answering all those objections from Scripture. So if if you feel some sort of objection to this, like, well, you know, that that's too difficult of a feat. I can't read and understand the whole thing or some parts of it are irrelevant or monotonous. If anything in your mind is is going right now, well, I don't really need to do that. You know, I just need to do a topical study. I would encourage you to listen to that podcast and just let scripture itself speak to those objections because every one of them actually is answered in scripture. So in part one of this workshop last night, uh, I challenged everyone to commit yourself to reading the whole Bible daily, strategically, and intentionally. 
And that looks different than reading a verse just to answer the need that's on the table right now to bring me some peace in the area where I'm struggling. It looks different than um, I'm trying to share the gospel and I just need to freshen up on what verses are good to present Jesus to my lost friend. It's different than I'm sort of in a theological debate with someone right now and I need to brush up on uh, the scriptures that undergird what I believe so that I can win at this one. That's all different than committing yourself to daily, strategically, and intentionally reading the whole Bible. And then the other part of the challenge last night was as you read the Bible, ask the right kinds of questions. And the two that we dug into last night were questions that help us recognize the character and nature of God in our reading and questions that help us see the centrality of Christ in our reading. So, for instance, my favorite Bible reading plan is a 365-day chronological plan. It's about 15 minutes of reading a day. And to ask the right kind of questions, the kind of questions that shift me from reading through a me-centered lens to a God-centered lens, here are some of the right kind of questions we talked about last night. Who is the scripture meant for and why was it written? Because context is key. We act very irresponsibly with Scripture when we just rip it out of its context, out of the author's intended meaning, out of the, the lives of the first century or, uh, or Old Testament audience who was initially receiving it. So context questions. Then we ask, what does the text teach me about the nature and the character of God? We practiced doing that last night through, uh, through several different passages. And then how do I find Christ as central in the passage? And last night we practiced that by looking at all four different genres of Old Testament writing and finding Christ in all of those. Because once we shift and we start looking at Scripture through a God-centered lens instead of a me-centered lens, one thing we quickly recognize is that Jesus Christ is written on every page of the Old Testament. And so it gets rid of that objection. Well, I don't need to read the whole thing because I live under the New Covenant. The Old Testament doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes. The Old Testament undergirds everything that we believe and practice as New Testament Christians. And so we're going to look at that today and practice answering this fifth question. And this is my favorite question. What other scripture connects to what I'm reading today? So if I start reading in the book of Genesis from the very first day of reading in, let's say we're doing a 365 day plan. It's two to three chapters a day. But from the very beginning, there are going to be scriptures that we read just in the first few passages in Genesis that connect us all the way to the end of God's story in Revelation. And that's the piece that I think when we start to recognize really makes us fall in love with scripture. It's what makes us want to read it. It's no longer a task that we have to do. It's something we want to do. And when we're done, we got to just start it again because now something's missing in our life if we're not daily, intentionally, and strategically walking that out. So to get us there, here's a key to making these connections is we find that Old Testament shadows allude to New Testament realities and Old Covenant truths hold up New Covenant promises. All right? That's going to be the premise here. Whatever is cryptic or concealed, whether in the Pentateuch, the prophets, the parables, the apocalypse, from Old Testament to New, if it's cryptic or concealed, you can usually flip to the other Testament and find some revelation about it and find its meaning. And this is important because what it teaches us is to read and understand the whole Bible. I don't have to be a Bible scholar. I don't have to be trained in Hebrew and Greek. I can just let the Bible interpret the Bible. And that works. 
And it's what really uh, empowers us in our reading of it. So these connections across books and testament not only um, explain the meaning of cryptic or concealed things to us, but they also expose the overarching story of the Bible that God's writing through creation so that he can transform us not to just be bearers of his image, which we were created to be in the garden, but also to be reflectors of his glory. And hang on to that because we're going to circle back to it. So during his ministry on earth, uh, Jesus, in addition to fulfilling the Old Testament, he also said it. He explained as he taught, this is what I'm doing. I am fulfilling all of these shadows and signposts and sounds that were laid out for you through the Old Testament. That's what he meant when he said in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the small letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In Jesus' sermon here, he's saying the entire word of God is very important. Uh, he doesn't do away with the law by abolishing the commands or even lowering the bar. He reaffirms the commands and then he elevates the law. He says things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you, and that but is not a contradictory but, it's an elevating but. He says that uh, the law said it's wrong to murder, but he says it's wrong to even harbor bitterness against another person, right? He's reaffirming and elevating all of Scripture, not doing away with it, not saying this isn't important and you don't need to read it. He says it's not only wrong to commit adultery, but it's also wrong to look at another person with lust in your heart. So when we start to understand this pattern of shadow in the Old Testament and fulfillment in the New Covenant by reading the whole Bible, this meta-narrative of Scripture comes into view. And this is really important. Renew.org has a great book about the meta-narrative of Scripture. That's the overarching story. And, and it's the piece of Scripture that once you connect with it personally, like I said, it's just going to drive you. It's going to drive your hunger and your thirst for God's holiness, His righteousness, that we become acquainted with through understanding His character through His whole Word. Because the Bible, you know, it's divided into 66 books. But all 66 books are just telling one story. And that is the story for the, of the restoration of all mankind to God for all eternity. That's what the Bible is. The whole thing is just about God loving us so much that he wants to be restored to right relationship with us. So I want to just take a walk through scripture and practice this. Practice making these connections from beginning to end so that we can recognize both the love of God and the meta narrative of scripture. And that's why this question number five is my important, my, or my, my favorite one. What connections do we see, uh, to the scripture I'm reading today in the rest of scripture? So let's just do that from the very beginning. So you start a year long Bible reading plan. You come to Genesis chapter three. The time when man and woman sinned, right? They left this perfect first love relationship in the garden. And from that very moment where God promised to crush the head of the serpent who had lured man and woman away from this perfect fellowship, perfect love relationship, from that moment, God set a plan in motion. And it was a plan to restore what had been lost. Again, that's the story of the Bible. God's plan for the restoration of all mankind for all eternity. He wanted to restore perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect unity, just man, woman, and God together in a garden. 
So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He creates mankind in his own image. He loves them and everything is good. God lives in perfect fellowship with man, love, unity. I mean, the Bible says that the, that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That is such an incredible picture, I think, that gets lost because we focus on the second half of the verse where God calls out, where are you? You know, but just picture that. Just man and woman in the garden with God walking among them. It's incredible. And then they trust this serpent, Satan, right, who lures them away, tempts them with evil desire. And so God was fully present with them in body, in heart, and they left him. And that's key. In their sin, they left him. And so they were banished from this garden where perfect love first bloomed. And even though mankind left... God never left. Instead, he immediately in Genesis chapter three starts advancing a plan to restore this first love that then we're going to walk out through the next 65 books of the Bible. So he says that in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. An allusion to Jesus, obviously. Satan would strike Jesus' heel when Jesus was crucified, but Jesus would crush the serpent's head when he resurrected and uh, and defeated sin and death. And then that same drama, when we read that in Genesis chapter 3, it's connected to the very end of the book in Revelation. Here's how Revelation puts it, uh, 12, 9, and 10 in Revelation. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of your God, the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. We get this picture in the book of Job. Satan comes before the throne of God to accuse Job, the accusers of our brother and sisters who accuses them before the father day and night, right? He says, I've been throughout the earth and there's no one who really loves and worship you. There's the accuser. But then we see this picture in Revelation of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where the serpent's head is crushed, Satan is cast down, and now there is a mediator who has replaced the accuser, and he sits advocating for us before the Father at all times, just like Satan used to accuse mankind before the Father. So God's whole story from Genesis to Revelation is unfolding that plan. And I want to look at this unfolding and how even though the covenant is new, it's really never changed. So let's, let's define covenant to walk us through this. We're looking at connections from Old Covenant to New, Old Testament to New Testament. And we're going to use that word a lot, so we need to define it. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. It's ratified by an oath or some other means and places demands on both parties. All right, simple enough. It's an agreement. It's got to be ratified in some way, and there are demands placed on both parties. So from the moment... That man and woman sin, they break fellowship with God. He starts unfolding a plan. And one of the key pieces in unfolding that plan is presented in the book of Genesis. It's the Abrahamic covenant. God comes to Abraham and he lays out the terms of this covenant in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17, if you want to go back and read it. But the summation is this. God's covenant was with Abraham. His side of it was, I'm going to give you many descendants. They're going to be the nation of Israel, and I'm going to give them a promised land to possess. That's God's side of the covenant. 
Abraham's side of the covenant was, Abraham, you're to believe me and walk faithfully with me, right? God calls him out of Ur and says, go to a land I'll show you. He responds with immediate obedience, doesn't ask where I'm going. What am I going to do when I get there? He just goes. So that's God's side. That's Abraham's side. And then the ratification of the covenant was circumcision. Abraham, you're to circumcise your descendants as an entry point into the covenant. So that's covenant number one where God first begins to unfold this plan for restoration to get us back to this Genesis garden. But about 500 years after that covenant uh, was put in place between God and Abraham, you've got the descendants of Abraham who now likely number well over a million and they broke their end of the covenant. Now, God never broke his, right? He had two parts here. I'm going to multiply you into a great nation and I'm going to give you a land of inheritance. He's already done part one. They're already numbering well over a million people. They come out of Egypt uh, to go to this land as God's fulfilling the other piece of this covenant. But instead of worshiping God, they choose to worship a golden calf, uh, following the pagan ways that they had learned during their Egyptian slavery. Now, remember, a covenant places demands on both parties. And even though Israel rejected the terms, Right. Because one of the sides of Abraham's was uh, you're going to follow me. You're going to obey me and walk with me in faith. So they've now rejected that part. But God doesn't reject them. He still is going to give them a land of inheritance. But he says, I'm not going to go with you. He never breaks the covenant. He's going to fulfill all of it. But he's just not going to go with them. Uh, Exodus 33, 3. God says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, right? That's what he promised. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff necked people and I might destroy you on the way. That's what he says when he finds them worshiping this golden calf. So the people now cry out to God in repentance. They've broken their side of the covenant. And he again uh, responds to their repentance like he always does by forgiving And now establishing another covenant. We find the Mosaic covenant. So here are the terms of that one. We had the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Mosaic covenant. God says, okay, I'm going to go with you. So that's the new part. He's already multiplied them into a great nation. He's still going to send them to the promised land. And now he promises, I'll go with you. That's his side. Their side is you need to build a tabernacle, ordain priest, institute a sacrifice, and do it exactly like I said. Right. So the piece of scripture that starts to kind of knock us off track when we start reading, we get into like Leviticus and numbers and there's all these laws and we go, oh, man, this is irrelevant. But really, it's not. This is a picture of God is a covenant keeping God and never breaks his end of the deal. And even when we break ours, when we repent, he responds by creating another path to bring us back. And that's all that is. All those laws are God's gift to his people because they said, wait a minute, you're not going with us. Well, if you don't go, we don't want to go. Don't send us up to the promised land if you're not going with us. And God responds to that kind of repentance, a repentance that says, God, I'm not just in this for what you can give me. I'm in this because I want to be with you, right? I don't want to go into this blessed inheritance if you're not coming with me. Because that's what God's after through all of Scripture. He's just after getting back to perfect fellowship with us and relationship. So he establishes this covenant with them, the uh, the Mosaic covenant. But 400 years later... Uh, when they have now settled into the land that God has promised, God's gone with them. Israel's now living as one united nation under King David. And David now purposes to build a permanent dwelling for God. They've, they've obeyed him in the establishment of the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifice. And 
God, uh, though he gave this construction project for the temple as a permanent dwelling place to David's son Solomon, he made at this time another covenant with King David. He's fulfilled every piece of the covenant that he made with Abraham. He's fulfilled every part of the covenant that he made with Moses. He's never broken his end of the deal. But now he makes this covenant with David. His side is this, David, you will never fail to have a descendant on the throne of Israel. I'm going to establish you as an everlasting kingly lineage. And then David's side of the covenant was you're to continue to walk faithfully with God, to uphold the terms of the tabernacle or temple with sacrifice and a priesthood, and you're still to circumcise your descendants as a ratification of the covenant. So you see, God, he hasn't changed. And really the requirement never changed. Man broke it, uh, but it never changed, and God never broke his side of the deal. So you see how this is all connecting together. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect garden, left perfect loved. God established a covenant with Abraham to bring them back. The Israelites are delivered from slavery. They're established as a free nation, but they left that redeeming love that brought them out of bondage. And so God establishes a covenant to bring them back. David was established as a kingly lineage, but his subjects in the kingdom revolted again against the God who had, had sustained them. They worshiped idols. They broke fellowship. And again, God created a covenant to bring them back. And what's awesome is this covenant was not just going to bring them back. It was going to bring all humanity back. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free people, men and women, every single person has broken their end of the the covenant of the deal. They've all left perfect love. We've all walked away from it. And so God has made a covenant to bring every one of us back. And the terms are still the same. That's what's incredible about this. It's the new covenant, right? In the person of Jesus, God makes this final offer. Now, this offer promised us God's presence. And no longer did we need another covenant because his presence would not be pictured in a temple or a tabernacle. Instead, he offered this forever redemption so that yearly sacrifices weren't required to roll our sins over until the next year of atonement. Exodus forty thirty four says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right? That was his provision in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, I'll go with you. I'll dwell with you, but you've got to revere my holiness and walk it out by establishing priesthood, tabernacle, and blood sacrifice. Well, that idea of the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, his presence filled the tabernacle at that time, a Greek verb form of that same word tabernacle is then connected in John 1.14. It says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Literally, he tabernacled with us. You see, the covenant never changed. The terms never changed. Jesus just fulfilled it. And even though he ascended back into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, he still hasn't changed the terms because he now dwells with us still in the form of an advocate, the Holy Spirit, who he says indwells us when we're baptized into Christ. So in this new covenant, we have a guarantee of God's presence. That's his side of the covenant. We also have a guarantee of God's forgiveness, right? Because we no longer need these sacrifices. Jesus came to be the final sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. 
He did not enter by the means of blood and goat, of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So this new covenant, we have God's presence, right? Just like he gave to the Israelites. We have God's forgiveness, just like he offered through the priesthood and the sacrifice. And then in God's promise, this new covenant, what is incredible is it really is no different from the Abrahamic, the Davidic, or the Mosaic covenants that we've just walked through. God has met every piece of the covenant that was his side of the deal. And we still have a demand placed on us. That's an important part of this new covenant. And the demand, this is why it's important to read the whole thing, does not look any different than the demand in the Old Testament. It is still the exact same thing that he said to Abraham. It's to believe him and walk faithfully. That was the requirement. But look how much the terms still line up. Did you know circumcision is still needed, right? Except it's a fulfillment of the shadow. When we read the Old Testament, we go circumcision. Wait, what? They needed to cut off their foreskin in order to be part of the family of God. Well, as we connect that across testaments, we find that this idea of circumcision was was a shadow of the cutting away of sin. And here's what Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says about it in this new covenant. In him, that's in Christ, you, all of us, were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, just like Jesus went through the greater tabernacle not built by human hands. Paul says your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. See, even the entry point to the covenant still looks the same as it did in the days of Abraham. It's a circumcision. It's a baptism now, a fulfillment of that. A temple is even still needed, right? The terms of the old covenant, yes, I'll be with you, but you need to build the tabernacle, ordain the priesthood, and offer the sacrifice. The difference, the fulfillment, is that that tabernacle is now each one of us individually, that's what scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6:19, do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God? You are not your own. So we still have circumcision as the entry point. We still have a temple as God's dwelling place. We are that temple and a priesthood is still needed. And that exists in all of us collectively as Christ's church. See, in the Mosaic Covenant, Israel was called out of Egypt and they were supposed to be a royal nation of priests. That was their purpose, according to Exodus 19.6. But when they come to Mount Sinai, Moses comes down the mountain with... Uh, with the Ten Commandments and they're on there worshiping the golden calf, right? He throws the commandments down. He breaks them. And he said, whoever's on the Lord's side, step forward. And then God says, tell them to go back and forth throughout the camp killing people. And it's the tribe of Levi that steps forward at the base of the mountain. And so they go back and forth throughout the camp killing people. And that day, 3,000 Israelites fell by the sword according to their idolatry. And so God said in Exodus 32, 29, or well, Moses said, then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you were against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you. That's how the Levites became the priests. Because on that day, they killed 3,000 idolaters. But then we move forward to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on mankind and Peter preached the first gospel sermon 10 days after Jesus' uh, ascension into heaven. And that day, 
We find 3,000 people respond to the gospel and they're baptized and raised to new life. So in this old covenant, 3,000 died because of their idolatry. And in the new covenant, exact same time frame, 50 days after Christ's resurrection, after the Passover, just like 50 days after the Passover in Egypt when the people came out of bondage and were at Mount Sinai, 50 days later, 3,000 are brought back to new life. In response to the gospel, do you see how this all connects? The covenant is the same. The terms never change. They've just been fulfilled. So now that priesthood looks like all of us who are followers of Jesus. First Peter 2 9 says it like this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we still need circumcision. We still need a tabernacle or a temple. We still need a priesthood and we still need the sacrifice. And Jesus was that ultimate sacrifice. So I hope you start to see the meta narrative coming into view here that we can only get when we commit ourselves to reading the whole thing. In the beginning, you have perfection. Genesis 3, 3. Then the man and woman heard the sound of God as he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Six days God creates and then he rests with man. His purpose in creating us, was he was going to rule and rest with his creation. Perfect fellowship with our sovereign king. Then God establishes the old covenant. Later in Leviticus in the Mosaic covenant, after God gave uh, his instructions for setting up the temple and ordaining the priesthood and performing the sacrifice, here's what he said, Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. See, Leviticus is not a terrible book to read. It's just God saying, I'm trying to do what we were doing in the garden. I just want to walk around with you in the cool of the day, me and you in the garden together. And every single thing that we find about the temple and the tabernacle, these things that are like difficult to read because they're all these dimensions, all they are are shadows that are pointing us back toward this garden. Why did they need all these pictures of flowers carved out of gold in the temple? Because we're recreating the garden, right? Just a place of God's perfect presence and fellowship with mankind. That's what the temple and the tabernacle was. And then every restoration prophecy through the rest of the Old Testament, after these covenants are established, start pointing us toward something bigger so that we know that God's ultimate plan was not going to be just this confined copy of heavenly things that could be held in a temple or a tabernacle or a priesthood. He was going to do something much bigger and eternal, which he accomplished in Christ with this new covenant. When Jesus came, heaven literally touched earth when King Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father. Matthew one twenty two, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Same thing as in the garden. I'm just trying to walk with you. I'm just trying to be in perfect fellowship, ruling and resting with my creation. Just trying to get back to that. But that final covenant, while it's the last covenant, it's not the end of the story. Right. Because it still points us forward. And this whole picture still connects God's one story, his plan for the restoration of all mankind for all eternity. Of course, it ends with a final consummation. And I want to just walk through that with you real quick. The full and final restoration of the paradise of God's presence is fulfilled in John's vision that he receives from Christ called Revelation. 
So Jesus, in the beginning of this book, he writes letters to seven churches of Asia Minor in the first century, and he says this to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, that's no different than what we're talking about that every one of us has done. Adam and Eve did it. They forsook first love, right? Perfect, unhindered fellowship and love in the garden. The Israelites did it at Mount Sinai. The kingdom of Israel did it when they turned to idolatry. And every one of us have done it when we've sinned. We have forsaken this first love that was perfect, that was birthed in the Garden of Eden. But then God goes on to say in Revelation 2-7, whoever has ears, same thing, he's still talking to the church at Ephesus, let him, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's he saying? Well, Adam and Eve had to be banished from the garden. We talked about this last night. Because after they, they reached out and, and took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, oh, now they've sinned, so I need to banish them from the garden. I don't want them to eat from the tree of life and live forever in a broken state of fellowship with me. Because the definition of an eternity separated from God is hell, right? So that's an act of grace. He puts them out of the garden so that now he can advance this plan to bring them back into perfect fellowship before they can live forever. And now he says to this church in Ephesus, which is a message to every one of us, you've left the love you had at first, but if you are victorious, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life that is in the garden of God. That's the, that's the tree in the very beginning. That's the tree that is pictured in every uh, blossom that is formed of gold and placed in the temple in the tabernacle. That's what he's just been trying to get us back to the whole time. And then here's how his story ends. The very last chapter of Revelation, it messes me all up every time I read it, because this is where you get to the end of the Bible and you go, oh, this started in a garden and it ends in a garden. And it's not so much about the place, right? Because I think we think about heaven and we want to think of a place when it's more about a presence. It's more about I am in perfect fellowship with my creator again. This is how he designed this, that we would rest and rule together. <laughs> and here's how he describes it. It's Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. You see that? Unbroken fellowship, day and night. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign with him forever. What was the intent? I want to rest and roll with my creation. And that's what he brings us back to at the end. And it's this perfect garden picture and reading the whole Bible. This is why this matters. It's so captivating and it's so life changing because that's what it is. It's a love story. And when you abide in the love of God by continually committing yourself to reading that love strategically, intentionally, daily, you find that everything God has ever done, every event He's ever orchestrated in human history, the rise and fall of empires 
has been about nothing more than bringing you back into a garden with Him. That's what He wants. And when you grasp that love, when you're in awe of it, when you understand the depth of this redemptive work that has been done, that every single interaction that we even have with one another that God is orchestrating is about nothing more than just wanting us back in perfect fellowship with him. You are just wooed into a love for him. And it's a love that wants more. You want to read it more. You want to learn more. You want to do more. All of a sudden, his kingdom is first. Like that's what matters is that we get back to this original plan that God had. Those connections that we make across books, chapters, testaments, they are what transforms us so that we don't just bear the image of God, but we reflect the glory of God. Like I said at the beginning, and I want to just share this with you to close. Um, Like I said, this is something I'm really passionate about, reading the Bible. Read the whole thing. Do it again. Do it again. And here's what's really powerful about that is no matter how many times you read it, you can be on your 25th time and you're still going to learn something new. You're still going to be drawn closer to God. I believe that's what the Hebrew writer meant when he wrote in chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the attitudes and thoughts of the heart. So I want to share with you something that is pertinent to this conversation that I have learned just in my last Bible read-through, just in this this 180-day read-through that I just finished with the women of my church this past Friday. Um let me share with you Exodus 34, 29 through 35. So we've talked a little bit about this. Moses is coming down the mountain at Sinai, right? And, and here's the people worshiping the golden calf. So he goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments again because he broke that first set uh, when he saw the people sin. And here is that account, uh, 34, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of the covenant law, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the presence of the Lord to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. All right. I've read the Bible through a lot of times at this point, and I have always thought that Moses covered his face because he was just so shiny that when he looked at the people, he was going to be blinding to them. But we ask this fifth question. What other scripture connects to what I'm reading today? And it's taken me several times of reading it through to find this connection. But here's what I found. And I want you to notice what I'm doing here is all I'm doing is connecting something in the old to something I remember reading in the new from a read through before. This does not require that I'm a Bible scholar or a theologian or have an understanding of Greek and Hebrew. This is just connecting across testaments. So the whole passage I would connect here would be 2 Corinthians 
3, 3 through 18. We won't read that whole thing. We'll read some select verses. But if you like to make connections out in your Bible, beside Exodus chapter 34, verses 25 or 29 to 35, you could write 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 to 18. Now, here is what 2 Corinthians 3, 12 says. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face, to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Okay, right. That's what I did. Okay, see, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, because you're in a Bible reading plan right now. See, so yes, the hope that Paul's referring to here is that new covenant, that final covenant that we just talked about in Christ. That's the hope that makes us very bold. It's that new covenant. Moses was covering his face. Not just because it was too bright for the people to look at, but because his glory was fading. It was transitory. He comes out of the presence of God and he's shiny, right? And then he veils his face because it's fading. And he doesn't want the Israelites, Paul says, to see that the glory is fading. He's having to lead a million people through the wilderness and they're already giving him a run for his money. That's why I appreciate the book of Deuteronomy. You get there and the man gets to preach for like 30 some chapters and like he deserves this because these people have put him through hell. I mean, they have been a a task in the wilderness. (laughs) But now we under this new covenant that Paul's describing in second Corinthians, we're being transformed into the image of Christ with an ever increasing glory. Right. Moses had to veil his face because the glory is fading. But now because we have uh, access to the presence of God all the time, we don't have to wait for a yearly day of atonement for our sins to be rolled away. We don't need a mediator to go into the tabernacle. We are in the presence of God at all times because the Holy Spirit lives in us with our body as a temple. Our glory is not fading, but it's ever increasing, Paul says. Now, this is pictured in Jesus' own crucifixion, right? Because the veil has been torn. So when Jesus died on the cross, this power of Satan was broken and transgressions that separated God from humans were conquered, right? So that we can come back into that presence. And Matthew 27, 51 says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So just like the curtain that separated the people from God who was in the Holy of Holies, now this veil that Moses needed to keep over his face to hide this fading glory has been removed from us as well because we have access back in to the Holy of Holies, back into the Garden of Eden so that we can have this ever-increasing glory. Our face in this new covenant is uncovered. Because the veil has been removed and now people can see our ever increasing God recreated glory, right? And in that way, we're not just bearing God's image like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. We're reflecting his glory and it's growing and becoming more and more. That's why we're the light of the world, right? Because that veil has been removed. So we dwell now with God because his spirit is in us. And scripture says he is bringing us from glory to glory until we come back to the garden, Revelation 22, and re-enter the forever unhindered presence of God. There's one enemy left to be defeated at the end, and it's death itself. And then we eat from that tree, that tree of life that Adam and Eve were taken away from in the beginning so that they couldn't live 
in broken relationship with God forever, but we will live in perfectly restored uh, relationship with God forever. So I want us to be able to take some questions here. But, but what I have attempted to do, and hopefully it wasn't too much, and you're tracking with me, is just to model this fifth question for you. As I read the Bible, as I commit myself to a whole Bible read-through, what scripture connects across testaments and books to what I'm reading today? And now of the five questions we talked about, right, we had two context questions. We had a character of God question. We had a centrality of Christ question last night. And this fifth question, connection question, is the more difficult one to answer because the first time you're reading the Bible, you don't know the connection. If you're reading about the Abrahamic covenant for the first time, you're just wondering why in the world of all the things God could have chosen to ratify a covenant, would he choose the removal of foreskin on a man? Uh, until, but, but then, but then you get to Colossians the first time and you go, oh, that's what circumcision was about. I see how God was setting up a shadow that was going to be fulfilled later. Uh, and then the second time you read it, you find more of those. And the third time you read it, you find more of those until you just want to read and read and read. Like I said, this one about the actual reason Moses' face was veiled did not occur to me until this last 180-day Bible read-through. So uh, Jason, at the beginning here, when he introduced me, mentioned a book that I have coming out called Step Into Scripture. One of uh, the things that that book does is it front-loads a lot of those connections. So if you are using a whole Bible read-through as a discipleship tool, because that's what we're here to talk about this whole week, right, is discipleship, um, this is this is the most effective way that I have found in over 20 years of ministry to disciple women is when they come to me, and I've tried a lot of things and walked through a lot of seasons, but when a woman comes to me and says, hey, will you walk with me, will you mentor me, will you disciple me, I say, will you read the Bible with me? And And this is what we do. We read it daily and we discuss it. We discuss what it's about, the context. We discuss the character of God and his love that we find in it. We discuss the centrality of Christ, the climax of God's story. And then we discuss connections across testaments because you're reading it for the first time. You got a lot of questions. And so that's what I've written in this book is, is a lot of those connections on the front end. Uh, there's a lot of pointing forward in the New Testament and a lot of pointing, or in the Old Testament, a lot of pointing backward in the New Testament to help you make those connections as you, um, as you develop biblical literacy yourself or as you disciple other women into that. All right. So here's my hope that you'll walk out of this workshop with a new or a renewed commitment to reading the whole Bible beginning to end, uh, because I believe there's no better way to step into Scripture than just to connect yourself to the source itself, which is uh, Christ, who we know through the Holy Spirit-inspired, authoritative Word of God. I don't think there's any Bible study. I don't think there's any YouTube video. I don't think there's any speaker. Nothing I can say that can compare to what you're going to get by just opening your Bible and you personally committing yourselves to it. I can't impart that um, that that desire, that fire, that love to you. I think it's something that on purpose we're supposed to each personally connect with through knowing God through his word because he's just trying to bring us back to a garden. And we don't need a mediator. We don't need a preacher, a pastor, a teacher to mediate between us and God that love that he is trying to convey to us. He wants every one of us personally, deeply connected to it. Um 
And then I'll put this on the board, his phone number that you can text if you would like more information. Uh, the book that we've just talked about will be coming out on May the 19th. There's also a podcast associated with it. Or if you just want to connect with me on social media, um, you can text SIS, which is cute, like sister, like, hey, sister. Um, but it also stands for Step Into Scripture. You can text that to 855-721-1400 to get that info. So that was a lot. Do y'all have any questions or thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, go ahead. I really appreciate um, the meta-narrative emphasis and uh, the continuity that you stressed. What do you think about reading the Bible categorically? If you're reading some of the history in the Old Testament and you're getting a little worn out and you want to maybe read some admonition in the New Testament or if you're in the poetry section and you want to read some uh, of the gospel narratives. Yeah. That jumping around a little bit to keep interest stuff. Like, sure. Like you don't get bogged down in Leviticus and Numbers. Yeah, I, I don't think you can go wrong at all by reading the whole thing. I think where we, I think where we err is when we are only reading topically, which is not what you're describing. You're describing reading it all, but not necessarily reading it straight through or reading it chronologically, which I think really comes down to preference. You know, my favorite plan is a chronological plan. Um, and, and I was talking to another lady in here last night who likes to read in the way you described and the version app, I think, has some good plans for that also. And I think as long as you're committing yourself to reading the whole thing in a way that you can find the meta narrative, you can trace it through. That's a win. And that's going to be transformative. My, my fear is that often we don't do that. We we just hear enough sermons about it or we read enough spotty, disconnected, disjointed chapters or maybe a book here and there. Um, and then we don't get that meta narrative. And I think that gives us like a false sense of biblical literacy. And I just say that from my own experience. Like I grew up going to church, Sunday school, youth group, Christian school, like really thought I knew the Bible. And when I first committed myself to reading it the whole way for the first time, I went, I didn't know any of this was in there. There was actually a lot of stuff I thought was in there that was not in there. <laughs> and, and, and when we rely on, on secondary sources, and listen, there are wonderful men of God out there who are preaching and teaching the word. My husband is one of them. He's a pastor. Um, and, and so I know that he's committed to God's word, but I will tell you, I, I fear that when we rely too heavily on that, you know, you don't even know if the person you're relying on to be your teacher is getting the majority of what they're sharing with you directly from the source or if they're relying on commentaries or other people's teaching. And and that's how we start to perpetuate like generations of biblical ignorance because we're not personally connecting directly back to the source. So whatever that looks like for you, whether reading like you've just described, reading chronologically, reading straight through in the order of the canon, but committing yourself to reading the whole thing so that it's it's your personal relationship with God, right? Yes. So you said that you just finished the 180 days yes. in your church. I was just curious, what did that look like practically? Could you describe that? Was sure. A small group of women, did you meet together at your home or at church? How often? Like once a week, once a month? Yeah. 
Yeah, we've done this a few different ways. So this most recent 180-day reading plan, uh, we have a big women's conference in the fall. And so at the end of it, we you know, want to plug women toward next steps. And a next step for discipleship is always a Bible reading plan. And so some women will just organically group up and do it. Um, we also have some online groups. Uh, so I, I'm uh, on staff with my church as the director of communications. So one thing I do to help communicate about this is we form private Facebook groups and people can join those groups. And in those spaces, we can host daily discussion, Q&A about what we're reading. And then some of the groups uh, of, of women who would just kind of form up organically would meet around it once a week. There have been seasons where I met once a week with women. That's kind of a seasonal thing for me, depending on how I'm traveling. But I think that's a great way to do it. You know, send out a Bible read through. I mean, the, the U version will function like social media if you want it to. I don't personally use it that way, but I know many women do and, and find it to be very helpful where you can choose a Bible reading plan, add friends on there. I think, um, yes, because I just watched a connection happen between these two women who met each other for the first time in person in this room just right now. And they've been doing just that, right? Yes. Connected over a U version app. So I would say, you know, get the same plan in the hands of everyone who wants to participate. Open it up. Hey, does anyone want to read the Bible with me all the way through? If you can meet together once a week to recap. And those five questions that I described are a great, great way to recap. You know, you talk about context, talk about the character of God, talk about the centrality of Christ and talk about connections across testaments. Um, and none of that requires you to tap into any major extra biblical sources, except maybe context which you can find with a study Bible or a Bible dictionary um, if you want to know you know, some history of the region you're reading about or even of a historical event that you're reading about. You know, if you're reading um, about the, the Babylonian destruction of Judah, you can find information that's historical about that that undergirds and reinforces the truth that we find in Scripture. But that, that's what I would do. Right now I'm doing a chronological read-through with a group of women. It's actually, um, they're not even women I go to church with. I have a friend who um, owns a business in town, and she and her husband have a lot of employees, and they want to see those employees. I mean, it's a plumbing company, right? It's not some sort of um, theology group, but they just want to see their employees love Jesus. So she invited all their female employees into a Bible read-through and asked me to come and be part of it. So I go to her house on Saturday morning. The women are reading Every day, if you're reading in 365 days, it's 15 minutes a day of reading, about three chapters. And then uh, on the on Saturday, when we come together, we do that that day's reading in a group setting, and we just talk about what we've read for the past week. Yeah. So, uh, did you develop any sort of strategies about that midway point where you start to see things kind of? the energy level come down a little bit and your group maybe is dwindling a little bit more how to regain and refuel? Well, <laughs> that's where meeting weekly helps. So every time I'm doing a read-through group that's meeting in person, or even if it's online, there's key points that we come to, like Leviticus. If we're sitting in a group setting like this, I'm going to tell everyone, raise your right hand, put it up, we're going to take an oath. Leviticus is not where my reading plan goes to die. Repeat it. <laughs> everyone say it. Now you just made an oath. So don't you quit reading the Bible in the book of Leviticus. But, um, you know, we do silly things like that. But but really, I think just the accountability of coming together helps with it. And also, you know, whoever you're walking with, whoever you're discipling, saying to them, but if you fall off, forgive yourself and pick it back up. 
right? Because I think that's another big mistake we make is we'll miss three days and we'll go, well, I've already fallen off. No, don't do that. Pick it back up. Come to group. Let's discuss. You'll you'll hear what you've missed. We're going to discuss it. We're going to talk about it. We'll fill in some blanks, but just don't quit. This is funny. Um, the, The Bible read through that turned into the book I have coming out. I wasn't writing it to be a book. I was writing it to lead a, a group online through the Bible. And then um, I was offered a, a publishing deal for it. But as I was doing that read through, this was, when did we do that? 2021, I think. It's been a couple years ago. But there was one woman <laughs> who was coming to the weekly group. And man, she struggled through it. She didn't go to church with me. She just um, came to Bible study with me. And she even said to me, there are women from my church who were like, why are you going to that? You do not need to be reading the Old Testament. That has nothing to do with us. And I was like, no, that's not true. You're not going to know anything the book of Hebrews is talking about when you get there, if you believe that. So she was so committed to finishing this. And and because this was done in an online setting, but we would also meet in person um, every day, I would publish the the guide to that day's read through. And so it was a, it was a Facebook post in a private group. And Facebook's private group settings have really become conducive to this kind of thing. They have, uh, I'll tell you a book in a minute. Don't let me forget that you can get to help you with that. But this woman was so committed to this and we've been done with this reading plan for two years now. And this morning I got up and had my notification that she had liked day 293. And I said, look, Tabitha, she has still not quit. You know, that was a 365 day plan that we finished two years ago and every like three days, and so I see her, we go to a homeschool co-op together, we don't go to church together, but I'll see her there and I'll, I'll say, I see you still hanging in there. You know, you are, you are committed and I appreciate that. <laughs> so I think that's huge. It's like, listen, maybe it's going to take you three years to finish your one year plan and that's okay because biblical literacy, true biblical literacy and, and using the Bible to develop a true love relationship with God is not the short answer. It's the long game. Um, and, and it's only the beginning, right? When she finishes this read through, I hope she starts another one and it might take her five years to get through. But every time she's reading it, the glory is increasing, right? She is being transformed into that reflector of God's glory. So that's what scripture does for us. So I would, I would encourage them. I would make them raise their right hand and take an oath. Um, and, and, and having those connections front loaded, like I've described, is also helpful because you get to some of these prophetic announcements that on their face are, it's okay, that on their face are about, you know, the nation of Moab or Ammon or Edom. And you're going, what in the world does that have to do with me? But as you connect it to the meta narrative, you start to realize what I just said. This entire rise and fall of nations that you have to walk through in the Old Testament was happening for one reason. Because God was gathering all nations under one empire, and it was the Roman Empire, and Jesus was going to come, like Daniel saw pictured when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. And now all these one empires are this great statue, and there's going to be a rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands going to smash that statue. Jesus comes, and he defeats every reigning world empire in one fell swoop, and he establishes a kingdom that endures forever. And when we recognize that piece, then all of a sudden it's like, oh... All these prophecies against all these nations that we come through in the major and minor prophets, which is that difficult space. Now I see what God's doing. He's setting me up to rest and reign with him. You know? Yeah. One of the things you mentioned last night, which was helpful, is um, the Bible Project, the short video yes. of each of the books, helps tie in the meta narrative as well. 
It does. Yeah, that's a great tool. Anytime I'm ever starting to read a new book and a read through, even still today, I'll pull up the Bible Project on YouTube, like type in YouTube Bible Project Genesis, and you'll just get uh, a short narration or um, animation that just gives some context for the book and does help connect it as well. And I appreciate their stuff because they don't try to, um, you know, I know that across different denominations, there are some pieces of the meta narrative that get interpreted differently. And I think the Bible project does a good job of, let's say, revelation coming there and say, some people see this this way and some people see this this way without saying this is the way. And um, because I because I think that uh, that people need to read and connect with that themselves, sometimes people will call me and say, what does our church believe about such and such? And I'll say, let's don't do that. Why don't you look up that word in scripture and read what the Bible says about it? And I'm going to tell you that's what the church believes, right? Because we believe what the Bible says. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. I just want to thank you for this because this has opened my eyes a lot. I just, I'm in a two-year Bible reading program. That's awesome. I mean, I've done year ones. This is what happened. I get through it and check, check, that, that, done. I never make associations. But in the second year program, I've got to... That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Then mission accomplished. If you walk out of here saying that's what I'm going to do, then we we met the goal today. Well, thank you guys so much. I appreciate. Oh, yes. Um, If you want to do this in, in an online setting, Facebook has made it super easy. There's a book called From Social Media to Social Ministry. Is that right? It's written by a woman named Nora Jones. Is it Nora Jones? Yes. Um, and, and she, uh, she used to work for Facebook. She left that and went to ministry and she shares with you how you can set up private groups, um, in ways that really facilitate Bible study. Well, like you can actually set up units. So when I've done Bible read throughs, you know, people can go to a private group and they can go to this 365 day unit study. And that's how my friend every day I see she likes the post. She checks it off. You know, I've done that one. But um, there's there's some good systems that Facebook has in place that can be stewarded in that way. And she lays it out. She does a great job of laying out how to build a whole online campus. And it's crazy. She released that book like right before quarantine started from COVID, probably having no idea how necessary that was going to be in churches everywhere. From social media to social, is it from social media to social ministry? Am I saying that right? Yeah, I know. I I think it's Nora. It's not Nora Jones. That's a singer. Hold on. Her name's Nora something. Hold on. Let me, let me Google it. From Nona Jones. Yeah, so there you go. That's what it looks like, this blue book. So, yeah, if, if you want to host this in an online setting, she and she gives you a lot more than just what you can do with that. She's got a whole layout for a, a whole online campus for your church that can be run through Facebook, and it's actually a great way for people to find connections. Cool. Well, thank you all so much. My gosh, that was awesome. Thank you so much, Tina Wilson. Thank you, women of Renew.org. That really left me spiritually full this morning, just editing that podcast. Hope that you got a lot out of it, too. The stuff that she said in the middle about God just trying to get us back to the cool of the garden, walking with us, 
was just beautiful. Up next, we've got more from womenofrenew.org. We've got, from my church, Michelle Eagle. She's the discipleship and women's minister at Harvard Christian Church. She's going to talk to us about getting out of the, but we've always done it this way, mentality, and to start truly realizing the impact of discipling women in your church. Stay tuned, hit subscribe, and as always, enjoy the rest of your day. Catch you on the next episode, y'all.